the ministry of Graceview Church. In South Haven, Mississippi. On graceviewchurch.org. At graceviewchurch.org. Let's hear from Pastor Chris. Today we're going for the most famous place first in the world. Lord our God and Father, we thank you so much for this time of coming together in your name. And now as we open your word, we pray that you would bless the reading and the teaching of your word. That you would impress it upon our hearts, that you would make it accurate, that you would make our exposition sound, and that by the power of your spirit, you would embrace these things. We thank you for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So welcome to Graceview. Uh, several of you have asked again how you get to the church website. It's just graceviewsouthaven.com. The reason you have a hard time finding it is because there's hundreds of Graceviews across the country, and some of them have great websites. So that's why we changed ours to Graceview South Haven. We're the only one of those. So just remember to put that in there. Today we'll be talking about Israel and the church, perspectives on Romans 9 through 11. I hope you had a chance to read those chapters, because of course we don't have time to go through the intricacies of three meaty, fat chapters in Romans today, but we will go over some important verses. The radio show is on at 8.30 on Sunday mornings, and of course you can go to their website and listen to it after the fact if you want to hear what happened on those. You just go to Block Radio Network, make sure you go to the one in Memphis, and you can hear now three programs that we've had broadcasted on the year. We're already getting a lot of response from the community, including requests for us to go to different churches and do things. Uh, this last Friday night, we went down to St. Patrick Church in Collierville, Tennessee, and we did presentations by Dr. Calvin Beiser on uh, different matters of doctrine. So if you know of a church that might want to invite us in there to do some apologetics matters, maybe ask them what their congregation is interested in or what they think they need to hear. This thing about apologetics, I know it gets a little misty at times, but basically there's a lot of arguments made against the church and against the Bible and against the Christian faith. And there are substantial, real, reasonable answers to those things. Most of the time, when you get a good guy fixed online, all they want to do is throw memes at you. Uh, but that's not really very effective. As soon as I get a bad or a weird mem from somebody, I just assume they've never actually read the stuff. That's a good opportunity for engagement, so we'll continue to do that. The next official meeting will be, I think, at Pastor Joey's church. He's still checking out the timing of that. But uh, Thursday, February 15th, over there, we'll just be talking about the recent findings in archaeology and the ways those support the teaching of the Bible. In other words, you know, one famous example was for the, the entire century of 1800 to 1900, the scholars of the universities were saying that Hittites never existed. But they come up in the Bible all the time. Then, after the archaeological discoveries of the 1900s, we now have no ancient civilization with more attestation and more history and more findings from ancient history than the Hittites. So the Bible's never wrong. And we can find that it's, uh, it helps to be able to have history also lined up with the things we've learned from the Bible. Now, our first verse for today is going to be this one, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. In other words, the presumption of our entire historical tradition coming from the 1500s on is that the Bible has everything in it. 
Well, what about cloning? Well, you know, I don't need everything, everything. Here's what I mean. In the most basic things that we have to deal with, as any culture on Earth dealing with any kind of technology or any advancements in the sciences, whether that be psychology, all the way down to physics, the Bible gives the basic answers on right and wrong and good and evil and God's judgment on these things for us to apply under any possible condition. God has spoken and is sufficient. So sometimes it's a little work to apply the Bible to some kind of an extraneous field, but it can always be done. But 99.99% of the things that come up in life don't have to do with that. They have to do with everyday life and family and interactions with other people in this world at this time. There's this schematic for these things. You know, some people say you have to come up with this whole vast configuration of things before you can apply the Bible to something, but it's really as simple as this. Uh, you're a person. Let's say you're a man, right? Because we still believe in this. This is the old church. Uh, you're a Christian man. What is it to be a Christian? What do you believe? How does this affect the way you think about yourself, God, and the people around you? You're a Christian man that's in a Christian marriage. You have interaction with a wife. What is a Christian expression of that life between a man and a wife? You have the extended family and the children. You're a Christian man within a Christian marriage with a Christian family. Within that, you are within a Christian church. What is it to live that out every day in thought, word, and deed? You're within a community where you're dealing with other people and other families. You're within a city. You're within a state. You're within a world. You're within a universe. Right? But the most important one is the first one. You have to challenge yourself with what is it that I'm saying when I say that I'm a Christian? What do I think? What do I feel? How do I live? Right? Going on from there, just to, just to start getting into this idea. Which I would do if I could make this work. Don't worry, Ian, I'm not going to panic quite yet. Okay, so these won't be, you won't be able to see these very clearly here. Uh, but I'll go ahead and read them. I'm just going to read you random verses uh, uh, about the church. Because the church comes up again and again and again in the Bible. <clears throat> Acts 20, 28. Be, be careful, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Romans 16.1. I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Cancrea. Romans 16.4, who risked their necks for my life, to whom I not only give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and theirs. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them behind, be, uh, before those who have no standing in the church? The church, the church, the church, the church. It goes on for six pages, and it's fair to be that. But you get the idea, right? Is this something that never comes up in the Bible, or rarely comes up in the Bible? It's something that comes up in the Bible all the time. Old Testament and New Testament. 
There are these currents that come through theology. One of them we talked about for a few weeks, it's the new liberalism. The new liberalism doesn't just say the Bible's not true. It comes with all these arguments and an alternate theology to replace the Bible, the Bible and traditional orthodoxy. It's called neo or new orthodoxy, which is no orthodoxy at all. The other current is to get rid of the church. Or to have the church interpreted in such a light and facile manner that it doesn't really matter that it does indeed exist. So the denial of church membership and the idea that it's just a get-together or that you can just do it in your bedroom and that kind of thing, those are the kind of ideas that come from this idea that the church never did exist or shouldn't exist as an institution. When the traditional teaching of the church and the Bible has been, there are three institutions that always will be from the beginning of the world to the end. The church, the state, and the family. That all three of these are necessary and ordained by God. But also in the New Testament, there should be no question that there is such a thing called the church and that there's a form and order to it that's taught in the Bible itself. Now what sometimes throws people a little is we keep going to the Old Testament to Israel in arguments about the form and nature of the church, which we consider to be completely fair. And some people say, no fair. If it happened before Matthew, it's out. We're going to completely remake the church just from the verses of the New Testament. How big is the New Testament compared to the Old Testament? That's when you hold up your Bible. Sometimes do that test, right? I love the New Testament. Jesus is in the New Testament, right? But it's like this big, and the Old Testament is like this big. God did not see it as necessary to repeat everything in the Old Testament in the New Testament in order to make it valid. So there's lots of teaching about God's ordering of civilizations and churches in the Old Covenant also. The most common artifact of that is that elders just run all the way from Genesis all the way through to the Revelation. He always has these. Okay, so just moving on to this. Let's go to where the rubber hits the road. I don't know if you guys are going to be able to see this on that screen there. But I'm going to make it as big as possible. But either way, we will turn to Genesis Chapter 32, verse 24. Genesis, chapter 32, verse 24. Because this is the first time anybody in the Bible is called Israel. So we're going to start in on this. Let's start from the very beginning. Here's how it happens that there is an Israel instead of not being an Israel. Verse 24. And Jacob was alone. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the, all the stories of Abraham being called by God, his son, and then his son. But it's Jacob. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip, hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said to him, Jacob. Then he said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, because you have fought with God and with men and have prevailed. This is the name Israel. Now as we know, Jacob has 12 sons, and they become the names of those 12 tribes with funny names that we find all the way through the Bible, right? Naphtali and Asher and Gad and Dan, all those different areas of the Bible, when they go on their different journeys within Israel, are named after one of these sons. So the first one to be called Israel is Jacob. There we get into a little bit of a tacky issue, okay? 
before Jacob, no one was Israel. Israel's a new creation right here. It goes into that deeper in the text. But Abraham was not Jewish. Now, really, Jewish comes from that tribe that came from Jacob called Judah. Here's why we're going into this. A lot of you have seen a lot of weird stuff online or in communications and work and stuff about the Jews recently since this new war, right? Now, the things that we call anti-Semitic comes from the name Shem, which comes from a people in the ancient Near East. So to be against the Jews has kind of become anti-Semitic. But there's a lot of anti-Semitic church uh, uh, sentiment within the church. Now those of you, we're just going to have to call it here, those of you that have been raised Catholic, you have heard a lot of this stuff. The ancient texts of the Catholic documents and such have nothing good to say about Jews in it. Right? And they say that the Jews did what to Jesus? Killed Jesus. Right? Because they don't want to name the Romans because it's the Roman Catholic Church. <laughs> so it's complicated, right? <laughs> So they even go as far as to say Jesus wasn't really Jewish. Because he wasn't from Judah. And has anybody seen a mem like this? Because I've seen a lot of them this last couple weeks. Alright? Here's the thing. Actually, when you know anything about the Bible, he was from the tribe of Judah. He was exactly from Judah. And he was born in Judah. Right? But also, uh, Jewish has been a name for the entire people of Israel that are the physical descendants of Abraham, whether they are believers or not. Right? We even call it, and take it out of the context, and call it a religion that many people hold to who don't believe in the existence of God at all. So let's distinguish between different uses of these things, but certainly Jesus in the Bible is called Jewish, and he's called the King of the Jews. So when we say the Jews killed Jesus, did Jesus kill Jesus? Did Peter kill Jesus? It's kind of a weird claim. Because while in some fragments there's truth that he talks about in the Bible, the Jews that were against him, the other Jews were for him. The entire early church was established by Jews. The entire evangelization of the nations was by Jews. And in the very beginning of the Bible through Abraham, God calls the people of Israel who were not yet in existence that through them the blessing of the entire world would eventually come. Now, the primary manifestation of that was in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But the rest of it was the evangelization of the world that happened from the people that believed in Jesus Christ. So even these kind of strange ideas that a lot of times people don't question, like the Jews killed Jesus. Well, of course they did, but so did you. So did I. So did everybody. He was king of the world. So in this, that's where it comes from. But there were a people of God before there was Israel. So what was God doing in establishing in Israel? He took from one family of the entire earth and said, this is the one through whom I will bless the entire world. And the entire rest of the Bible, from Genesis all the way through to Matthew, is just the process through which he uses his people Israel as a type of heaven, as a type of hell, as a type of falling away, as a type of coming to God. Sometimes there were many believers in Israel, and sometimes there were very few. You remember when Elisha thought there were none left and God said, there are 700 that I have retained to myself that shall not bow the knee to Baal. God retained them. And so there was faith in Israel. Now let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 2 before we get into Romans. And one of the reasons that we do this is to show this is not just in one book. 
Okay? So the Apostle Paul is writing here to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. You might have thought you had a fever in trespasses and sins, or just weren't feeling well that day in trespasses and sins. The Apostle Paul says you were dead. Now, dead is hard to overcome. In once you once worked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, he immediately brings up a spirit, and he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. There is spiritual warfare. It happens all the time. If you're a spiritually mature person, you will see it. You will be able to identify it. You don't always talk about it, but you know it when you see it. It's kind of like anything else. When you've seen it before, you know it when you see it. And this, this spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience, it attacks every church. So if you think your church is specially immune to this kind of thing, that's just not the teaching of the Bible. And if you think that spiritual warfare was just for that age, not for this age, you've got another thing coming. And God might have to teach you that the old-fashioned way. So, verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now here he's making an important distinction. There's a rest of mankind, and there's someone else. Let's see who it is. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The reason that's important is going to say the same thing in a different way in Romans chapter 9. Here he gets to one of the most famous verses in the Bible and one of the ones most beloved by those in our theological tradition. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, there's a lot of debate about the Greek that goes on in this, and we can always get into that outside of the sermon if you'd like to, but the participle is divided, making the definite article faith and not the doing. In other words, it is the faith that is the gift of God which differentiates between you and a person who's trying to get there by good works. That's why the apostle argues so many times, you can't be saved by your good works. Why? Because you're a sinner. And frankly, your good works are just not that impressive to God. Right? And so God gives the faith through which one comes in so that no one can brag they got there by your good works. Okay, moving on. Now we go to the heavy, Romans chapter 9. I told you about that time when I was in seminary and I was so excited to read John Chrysostom, John of the Golden Voice, who was so influential in the early church. And he's going through Romans, and I'm like, I'm finally going to hear what this great church father says about Romans chapter 9. And he goes through Romans chapter 8, and he starts on Romans chapter 10. <laughs> Even in those days, this was hot-button stuff, right? The Apostle Paul was a very educated man. Recently I had somebody bring up to me, well, the Apostle Paul never went to the seminary. Yes, he did. He studied at the feet of the greatest Jewish scholar of his age. And so he went through Plato and Aristotle and all of the other Greeks that had written two or three hundred years before the Apostle Paul was born. In other words, he was an erudite and educated man who understood philosophy. You think he understood the difference between the mind and the will? 
between the appetites of the thinking? He did. Do you think he understood the difference between logical things and irrational things? He did. Did he understand the difference between miracles and mere functions of nature? He did. And you find it all through his workings, right? So here, what he's speaking about is what happened to the Jews. What happened to the physical descendants of Israel? The reason you have to be careful is even in the Old Testament, weren't there believing Jews and unbelieving Jews? Read through Elijah. Again, you're going to find some that were partitioned by God and reserved in faith, but you're also going to find Ahab, right? You're going to find Saul. In the annals of Israel alone, you're going to find at least 16 kings that seem to have been unmitigated pagans and unbelievers. And two great ones, right? Josiah and Hezekiah. Hezekiah. That's who I was thinking, see? <laughs> but also King David, who's counterplayed against Saul, right? King David, who had his own sins, but God blessed him because he blessed the Lord no matter what. Now, here's something about Jacob that made him requisite to be Israel. He lived a life of lying and scandalous behavior. I'm sorry to tell you, this is the story of most of the guys in the Bible. This is why you have trouble with people who come to you and say, the Bible's full of sinners. As if that's an argument. <laughs> but they will come and they will question the validity of the Bible based on the morality of the people in there. And we're just going to, yeah, uh-huh, right? But he was so zealous to get the blessing of God that he did anything. He lied to his father. He stole the blessing from his brother. He did all kinds of things to get the blessing. And God saw that he believed and was so zealous for the blessing that he wrestled him all night as a symbolic and ceremonial presentation of his wrestling with God, and then he blessed him. Let me tell you something, Christian. You should want the blessing of God more than anything else in this life. You should be willing to move heaven and earth to get that blessing. Because that's all there is in this life. There's nothing else. So here's the Apostle Paul, and he wants to talk about his physical family. And he's going to distinguish them between the physical family of Israel and the spiritual family of Israel. So pay attention to this. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. Patriarchs is the word for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So let me stop you here, and we'll consider this. You know the law of God, right? If you're in this church, you know the law of God. You know you can't keep it perfectly. You know Christ has kept it perfectly for you. What is the most basically way to say what the law of God is? Love. Right? Love who? Who's first? Love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. Who's second? Love your neighbor as yourself. Who's third? The hardest one. Love your enemies and those that spitefully use you. Right? It's a hard calling. It's not an easy calling. It's a hard calling. So here's the, here's the basic argument here. Whatever you've heard about the Jews, or whatever you've thought about the Jews, or whatever you've read in you know, conspiracy articles about the Jews and stuff, 
Your calling as a Christian is not in question. I assume that you think the Apostle Paul was a Christian, right? And he had unceasing anguish in his heart over the unconverted Jews. Now your calling in life is simple. Love God, love your neighbor. Even if you thought of them as enemies, which there's a verse in here that says that they're enemies. We're going to get to it. We have to get to it, right? There's a verse that says they're enemies. Some people have twisted and wrenched that out of context. It says enemies of the gospel for your sake. But even if you thought that that meant that they're supposed to be your enemies, does that mean you're not supposed to love them? Is there anywhere that Jesus gives you the idea you should hate your enemies? You've got no one left to hate, Christian. You've got nobody left on that list. Your thing is forgiveness and grace and love. So here you have the most influential man in the New Testament other than Jesus himself telling you that he is swelled up with anguish for the salvation of his brethren. Should you not be also? Just in coming to your moral disposition toward these things. So he goes on to say this. Look, it's not as though the word of God is faith. Now, whenever the Apostle Paul brings up something like this, it's because somebody said something stupid. Should we take it that the word of God has failed because not every Jew at that time came running to the feet of Jesus, which obviously they did not. Here's why it didn't fail. Not all who were descended from Israel belonged to Israel. Here's where the fight starts, right? You had this thing already brought up last week called dispensationalism. It didn't exist in the church for 2,000 years until about the 1860s to the 1880s. And it did give birth to the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and lots of other groups. But they said that there's two distinct salvations, one for national Jews and one for the Gentiles. The Gentiles will be in heaven and the Jews will be stuck on earth in Israel eternally. Because you can't have these two people mixing. So they're blessed, but they're not blessed like we're blessed. That's not what he's saying here. That's why this idea didn't come up until the 1800s. Right? Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. This is the heart. Does he say that none are? No, he says not all. Here's how he's explaining people like Ahab, who just seem to hate God, hate the faith. But he was a good Jewish boy. Catechized and circumcised and king of Israel. Right? But, here's the quote from the Old Testament. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Abraham had two sons, right? Isaac and Ishmael. So he's using that thing that happened in real physical reality through two actual sons that he had to represent a spiritual reality. In other words, when God allowed Ishmael to come to exist... This was what he had in mind, teaching us a spiritual reality through an obvious physical instrument. This means that it is not the children of the flesh, because was Ishmael the child of Abraham's flesh? He was. Who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And so God distinguished between the two, and he only blessed one. That might be a difficult message, but if you're blessed, just say thanks, right? Then he gets into this. For this is what the promise said. In other words, the promise didn't say that every physical offspring of Abraham would be blessed. This is what the promise said. About this time or the next year I'll return and Sarah will have a son, his wife. And not only, but when Rebecca conceived children by one man from our forefather Isaac, Esau and Jacob. Now in case you're thinking to yourself, well yeah, but Ishmael had that other mom. Right? Uh, they're twins. How close 
together does he have to get to get the point through to you that they are both from the same mother and father and it's not an issue of blood? Though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad. So he's taking out the ethical question of whether or not they were going to do good or bad things in order that God's purpose in election might stand continues. Not because of the works, but because of the calls. He's taking out good and bad, and he's taking out whatever works might have accrued, and saying it, it, it depends on him who calls. She told the, she told, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And I know a lot of you have been taught God's never hated anybody, and uh, well, except for like in the Bible, like a lot. <laughs> in this culture, you're only allowed to hate a couple people. Hopefully, you all hate Hitler. But there's, you know, a few others that might come to mind. But, you know, that God loves everybody in exactly the same way, uh, he does not. It's not the Bible. He loved Israel in a special way, distinguished from all the other nations. Did people from all the other nations come into Israel and sometimes be blessed? Yes. But frankly, Israel was different. What shall we say then? Because he's, when he asks this kind of rhetorical question, you've got to answer it for yourself. Here's the question people will say. Isn't there injustice on God's part if he shows favoritism and chooses one twin and rejects the other? We know the question he's asking. And he says, no. For even to Moses, he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In other words, he's God, and you're not. And he's going to do what he wants to do. Now you can take it up with him, and you can shake your fist at him, and you can spit in his face, and you can try to kick his knees, but you're going to lose that engagement, Joe. Let's move on. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. There's only a few places where will comes up in the Bible. As I said, he read Aristotle, he read Plato, he knew the different debates that were going on about the will. But the only thing that it ever says in the Bible in three different places about human will in regard to salvation is that it's not dependent upon human will. It says it in three different places, and it never says anywhere it is dependent on human will. The Apostle Paul again is saying it depends not on human will or human exertion, it doesn't depend on works, and it doesn't depend on some previous knowledge of their good or evil. Because Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed on all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he will, and he hardens whomever he will. Here's the reason. When you go back and you read that passage, which he's expecting you to know in a cursory fashion, and you read, and it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And Moses came to him again, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And it says it again, and, Pharaoh, and Moses came to him again, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. But then the next line say, and Pharaoh finally decided he was going to set those people free. Because he had enough trouble from Jehovah, right? And then it says this. He was going to set the people free, but God hardened his heart. And then it says it again. He was going to set the people free, but God hardened his heart. So that he would not set the people free. Because he had determined that he was going to make his power known to all the world through destroying the most powerful man in the world and showing that he was God and that there was none other. That's why it has reference to this. And you will say to me then, because I made this argument, how can he still find fault? I get this argument now all the time. God cannot still find fault in people unless he saves all of them. Let me explain this to you. Adam and Eve fell into sin, right? All of you fell into sin with them because you were in Adam and Eve's bodies at the time they were made. 
this gets weird, right? But can any one of you biologically deny that you're actually the descendant of human beings? So if you get back to the original human beings, you're their descendant, you came down through time by ordinary generation from them, he was the king of the world, he was the Christ in Eden, he was the king, he was the first made man. If he sins, you all go down for it. That's the way it is. So from this teeming sea of fallen misery and humanity in which all were sinful and all were rejected by God, he chose to save some. Did he have a duty? Was he required to save some rather than none? Would God have been completely just if at that time he just wiped out mankind and started all over again with some other guy? Jeff. Instead of Adam, it was Jeff. Wouldn't he have been right to save none? What the Bible grapples with is not that he saves some, it's whether or not God is actually maintaining his justice when he saves any of us. You've got to understand that the Bible's whole orientation is trying to justify God for saving some people instead of destroying all of them. That's the Bible's argument. It keeps saying he's got to be just and the justifier, and God's making moral arguments for the fact that he saved you even though you're sinners. He's like, look, I sent my son into the world and he died in their place. He paid that penalty. All of the suffering that they would have had to have as sinners before a mighty and a righteous God has been paid. I did not dispense with justice when I saved them, even though they did not deserve it. The Bible's argument is not the way that we approach these things. Verse 23. In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand, even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As it says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. As Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, through the number of the sons of Israel be as many as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth, fully and without delay. You see that the people whom God calls from the Gentiles are being integrated into the people that already existed and were called Israel. There's many other things here, but if you read the passages... In verse 10 of chapter 10, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. But the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile, the Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here he says in verse 19, But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is as bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me, and I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now to chapter 11. The famous olive tree thing, right? It's so famous. The Apostle Paul says, 
If some branches were broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember that it was not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Here's one of the first things to remember about this, because it's a long analogy, and it says a lot. The branch, Israel is called one of the branches. It's not called the tree, it's not called the stump, and it's not called the roots. Who is the root? Jesus, right? It also is not cut from an apricot tree or an apple tree or a pear tree. It's another olive tree. And the wild branch from that is come into the cultivated branch and it's grafted in so that it has a natural relationship. What did the original tree produce? Olives. What does the engrafted branch produce? Olives, right? But he also says, look, be careful of that arrogance of thinking you're all that in a bag of chips when the Jews were there first. He gives us a warning against what we could see as anti-Semitism. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But if you stand fast, so do not be proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in again, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut by what is nature, a wild olive tree, and grafted contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted in back into their own olive tree? So here's what we get to on this. And I know it's a little bit hard. He's using the classical language here, which is why people get it wrong, but also why it works. In other words, it's complicated language on purpose. He doesn't always do it complicated, but here he does. Why would he keep talking about them being grafted back in if he had no intention to graft them back in? Right? Very complicatedly, he's maintaining distinctions on the basis of race through history. He still says there are people. Now, all the way until recently, many scholars, especially liberal scholars, said there would never again be a reconstituted Israel, a people of Israel, a descendancy among the Jews that was national ever again in history. It's done. They're cursed. They're done away with. Christians, even our famous guys like Calvin and Luther said, God will call them back to himself again, and it's right here in these passages. Read this one, but read it carefully. Lest you be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Then it says this famous verse, verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards the election, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now if you have a philosophy or a theology that says God cannot cause people that don't want Him to believe in Him and come to Him, all these verses are impossible and so we understand why it's very hard to believe that that's true. 
But if we believe that the only reason that we came to him is because he gave us grace and brought us to life from death and take our hearts that were made of stone and made them into flesh, that he gave us the gift of faith and so we came to him because of an action that he did and not because of one that we as fallen human beings do, then he can do exactly the same thing to them. Can't he? As a matter of fact, it does not matter how incredibly dark and evil the human heart is. God can save them if he wants to. He will reach out there and he will bring them to life and he will crush them. He'll bring them to life. So here he says, For just as you were at one time disobedient but God, to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy upon them all. Now grapple with that one for a while. God consigned the entire world to disobedience. He knew Adam and Eve would fall. He knew we would all fall into disobedience for the purpose that he might grant us mercy. That gets into some major philosophical conundrums that we won't go into today. Okay, finishing up. I know this has been a long one and a little bit of a hard one, but here's what you see. In the Reformed faith, we've always believed that eventually the Jews would come back to the Christ that is the physical representative of the nation of Israel and the particular seed of Abraham, and that they would believe in him again before the last day. I've talked to you many times about it. You've got these books and you've got these systems and they usually cost a lot of money. And you can get all these things about Israel and all these things that are happening and wars in the Middle East. But the Christian is only expecting one thing from Israel before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a worldwide revival of belief and faith in the real and true Messiah of God before he does return. So that all Israel, Jew and Gentile, will be one people. If you see that happen, you should get excited. If you see wars in the Middle East, when have there not been wars in the Middle East? There's always been wars, there will always be wars, there will always be rumors of wars. But if you want to see a pretty definite sign of the soon and coming king, look for worldwide revival, especially in places that have historically been dogmatically anti-Christian. Right? So every once in a while somebody will send me a note. Christians handing out tracts spit on in Jerusalem by Jewish people. I have no doubt those guys are out there, right? But what should the normal Christian attitude be toward a Jew who shares in us with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the Ten Commandments, the covenants, the promises, all of these things, who evangelize the early church and who reread the writings of the descendants of Abraham every day of our lives? Some people have said it like this. You might not like this, but first among equals. Of all of the people that are not Christians, they do have a favored status for Christians. How can we not love them, even because Abraham loved them? Let me tell you something weird about Abraham. They were questioning, and Jesus said, Abraham waited for my day, and he saw it right now that I'm here, and he was glad. Which one of you would be super happy knowing that none of your descendants would be in the kingdom of God with you? Now this gets into very simple stuff. God hardwires us to love our children and to want them to share in our faith. So when you force your kids to be a tiny people and God chose them because they were weaker and smaller than all the other nations so that when he did great things among them, they could only say it was God because it wasn't the God still loves them. You better love them too. 
There's places in the Bible where God's entire disposition for the person is measured and weighed by the way he reacts. Lord our God and Father, as we look into these things, we pray that you would give us great love, Lord God, for all people, for your church, Lord God, and also for the world. But there is a special thing with the Jews, Lord God, and with Israel. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, come quickly, but also impress upon your people the physical descendants of Abraham, by your spirit to know that you are the true and true king. This is our prayer. This is the disposition of our hearts to love all and to love them well. And we thank you for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.